So you're moving soon. Yeah. And I, to be clear, not like on purpose. I mean, it is on purpose. What do you mean but... not on purpose? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's absolutely on purpose. It means that my spouse uh, is a princess and he wanted uh, a house. Mm-hmm. And then he saw the house and then we bought the house. Yeah. Even though um, we weren't looking for the house. So you're buying a new house, which involves unearthing all your belongings yes in the old house so that you can pack them do these different things you know get everything ready to go to the new place and well 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 lo and behold something (laughs) has emerged from the darkness a precious relic from a time gone by has re-emerged for a new era for a new year and a new us one thing there's one item one sacred relic that could truly bring us back to our full and final powerful form. Do you know what we found the other day, Laura? Don't don't tell them. Let me let me just show them. Ooh boy. We found the gong. The gong has returned, my <laughs> friends. We have found the gong that was gifted to us many, many years ago. By um, a listener. By a listener. Who just happened to have two. And Actually, sent us one. Wow, there probably are a sizable number of print run listeners who have that never don't heard, know about the gong. Who don't know about the gong. So yeah, we when we first started, we were desperately thirsty for bits, yeah. right? As new podcasters, we were bitless. Are. Yeah, we were bitless, and so I was just sitting around all day thinking, what should our bits be? And one of the bits we came up with was like, you know, doing gong stuff, you know, having some sort of sound effects, you know, some bunch of stupid shit like that. You can understand where I was maybe coming from. But a listener, a beautiful listener, decided that they were going to take this very literally, and they mailed us an actual gong. We have one just sitting right here. And it let us do all sorts of hijinks. I mean, mostly let us do one hijink, which was me hitting it while Laura was talking, um, <laughs> which we are delightfully bringing back. We're bringing um, it back, but for the new house, we've yeah. got the gong back. Um, it feels good, man. It's been how long has this thing been missing? Like three years, I want to say more than that. Maybe. I've been in this house for five. We have not hit the gong in this house. I know. So five years. Five years. This thing has gone missing. God, we've been doing this show you know, a long time. I blame um, Nick. It's his fault. Yeah. Like I and and we Nick were is Laura's we were husband. We were purging. We were purging the basement. Yeah. And I turned around, and then when I like turned back around, he was holding the gong, and I was like, <laughs> "Where did that come from?" Oh man. Hold on. Yeah. We've had this in like he's a he's a uh, music producer and composer and sound engineer, and so we we are we are littered with various Instruments, musical things, yeah. chord detritus. Yeah. And apparently, this somehow got lost in all of that, and um, it is found again. Huzzah! Huzzah! Um, Actually, so... why are we saying huzzah? Hit the gong. Okay, we <laughs> got. He hit the gong off the table. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, the pro. Here's the problem. Let me let you in behind the curtain here. 
I'm not. We don't have the mallet back, so I'm actually hitting the gong with a set of sealed backgammon pieces in a little stack. So it's a little clunky, and I did just knock the gong off. It. We're out of practice, folks. Um, you know, I, don't know. I bet there are plenty of mallets upstairs in the studio, in the actual like music studio. Okay, we well, how about just... you? How about you bring a goddamn mallet down next time we have a gong show, Laura? How's that sound? <laughs> um, it's funnier to watch you use some backgammon so, uh, I'm pieces. There. There Boom. we go. Okay. Anyway, right. welcome <laughs> to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about two recent stories. Um, and two more, more than stories, they're mostly trends. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about both the sale and, or I guess, purchase of Simon & Schuster by the investment firm KKR. And we're going to talk about... Separately and then together, um, this new push for AI in publishing as a like a technology that can help the business and help writers and do all this kind of stuff that everyone in that world is trying to push on us. And um, we're going to get into all that in a little bit here. Before we do that, how about the basic rundown? Absolutely. Uh, if you have listened to this and you say, I hate the gong, you can pay us to not use the gong. <laughs> Just uh, email me specifically. What an awesome, hold on. I just thought of a new business model, which is be extremely annoying on air and then offer tiers where we get progressively more normal. Yeah. There's Let- um, <laughs> there's there's somebody I follow on Instagram who's local to here, and he, he talks a lot about, like, food industry business. Um, and he has this thing where he doesn't run ads, but you can pay him to not talk about your product. <laughs> And but then if he and if you're like an asshole and he blocks you, uh, you have to donate to like the Alzheimer's Association Mm -hmm. or something and then he will unblock you. But I like that is a that is an admirable way to do business. So if you hate the gong, and you don't want it to come to the new house, DM me and I will conveniently lose it in the move. Um, (laughs) Other than that, uh, we have. Our basic Patreon rundown, um, if you are a writer who is looking for craft resources or querying, um, critique, anything like that, uh, if head on over to Patreon. We have released our query show for the month. We've got first pages coming. Um, and as always, if you want access to our behind the scenes sort of for writers craft information and you cannot afford it, send us an email. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. We will provide access for you. No questions asked for as long as you need it. Um, we also have four, count them four hours of office hours this month because we you can hang out with me all month if you want (laughs) want to just come over for dinner that's a new patreon (laughs) um want to put my kid to bed (laughs) uh so we will have four different hours where you can come hang out this is available to anybody you don't have to be a patron for this come hang out for an hour ask us any questions you might want ask me my opinion on anything i love having opinions um and those are posted on a publicly available post on patreon so that is kind of like the the rest of our stuff mm-hmm. um absolutely but let's talk about the news so um well one thing i mean what i'm very excited to be doing in this episode is a thing happens mostly on Twitter with our account whenever I log into that specific account where we get tagged in a lot of stuff. 
you know, which I love, by the way. Please keep doing it. Um, it's very helpful. One, it's fun because I love going back and forth with all of you. But the other part is that it's very helpful because I can see what everyone is interested in, what people are talking about, um, what people are looking for analysis on, all that kind of stuff. But today is sort of, and one of the reasons it excites me, is sort of a clear out and refreshing of the queue of stuff people have been dying for us to talk about. Like we've gotten a ton of tweets about this first thing we're going to discuss, uh, which is the um, acquisition of Simon & Schuster um, by the investment firm KKR. And so we, it's tricky because, so I mean, I guess like the basic details here is they paid $1.65 million, billion dollars. Billion with a B. Yeah, Yeah. In cash. Yeah, I mean, they had it. Um, I think I read here, you know, I'm looking at, I've you know, been reading up on this a little bit. I think they're like a $50 billion, you know, firm somewhere in there. Like, they've got the money for this. This is not a huge purchase for them. Um, but, yeah, they, a, you know, a venture capital firm has purchased Simon & Schuster. And one From thing, Paramount. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, one thing that strikes me about this right at the top is that, you know, we have very recently had a separate failed Simon & Schuster purchase plan, right? Like, I mean, we spent how many hours, how much hand-wringing online about Penguin Random House trying to buy Simon & Schuster very recently, right? And that got shot down in court. And I remember doing a million funny excerpts about things Jonathan Karp was saying, all the, all this different stuff that made that trial about publishing so one interesting and revealing and depressing and all the different things that it was and eventually you know they shot that down because it was gonna warp the business too much to have these two companies as one you know um very little of that of any sort of that sort of hand-wringing this time through with this firm coming in and just i mean really to very little fanfare just snapping it up here's the cash boom yeah. done and well i think a lot of the industry people right now are sitting well you know it wasn't acquired by another publisher so we're not consolidating the business anymore and it isn't purchased by a firm that's backed with like saudi money yeah <laughs> um and so the idea then is it's it's the best of all the options um but the options all suck yeah no i mean in this option um, I guess we can just spoiler alert it uh, now. Um, I think this sucks. Um, part of the reason I think it sucks is because it represents um, just more like private equity getting involved in our business. And one thing that I think is true specifically of this firm, um, and that's, you know, I want to read here just for a second from um, this is an article originally from the LA Times. And here's, you know, just a quote about KKR specifically, but about what private equity firms in general do for those who are maybe unfamiliar. So here we go. <clears throat> private equity firms raise money from pension funds, endowments, and wealthy individuals and use a slice of that money plus a lot of leverage to buy companies that are then saddled with the debt. The Simon & Schuster transaction will leave the publisher $1 billion in hock, ratcheting up pressure to repay the debt and turn a profit. Now, a crucial bit of context before I continue here is that this company, or this firm, I guess a company might not even be the right word, but this firm, they recently bought Toys R Us. Um, and Drove it slowly into the ground. 
on purpose too. Yeah, is it not like it's not like oh they mismanaged Toys R Us. No, the idea was to buy it, saddle it with a bunch of debt, strip it for parts, and sell it. And that's like one thing I really want to get across here is that these firms are not interested in. Um, they're not trying to run a business. You know what I mean? And so let's just continue here. Those former Toys R Us employees can attest to how that goes. When a group led by KKR bought the company for $6.6 billion in 2005, it used $5 billion in debt. Then it kept squeezing. The new owners eliminated positions and offloaded responsibilities onto other employees while pressuring workers to sign up customers for high-margin sweeteners like credit cards and payment protection plans. KKR and its partners sold off Toys R Us's real estate, pocketed the money, and forced the retailer to lease back its buildings. Along the way, the firm and the other firms paid themselves $250 million in, quote, management fees and big bonuses to hand-picked executives right before Toys R Us entered bankruptcy. The story tracks the march of private equity through the American economy. Retail, pro- retail proved lucrative for KKR and other private equity firms, but 52,000 workers paid the price in California alone. So this is where you can kind of see why we are going to maybe object to this. And I think that the Toys R Us and really the whole retail sector with private investment getting involved here um, is an illustrative example because, again, like when Penguin Random House was going to buy Simon & Schuster, one thing that at least felt true is that Penguin Random House is a book publisher. They were planning to use Simon & Schuster to theoretically publish some books and make some money publishing books, right? Like, the idea was to do the business. The idea was to, you know, continue to, you know, publish. And there were separate concerns, but one of them wasn't, hey, they're going to turn Simon & Schuster into something other than a book publisher. Yeah. Here, I have those concerns because, again, like, the model here is, you know, strip and flip, right? I mean, it's like house flipping or something where you buy an asset, you... You, you know, you do certain things to it, you manipulate it certain ways, you know, you take your debt, you put it on there, and then you resell it as a way of making a net. Who cares what happens to the thing itself, right? But you and I, Laura, and anyone who listens to the show, we're pretty invested in the thing itself, right? Yeah. Like, it, Matt, like Simon & Schuster for all... And I do think that more than any publisher um, on this show, Simon & Schuster has probably caught the most flack from us and... I would say probably for good reason at different moments, but that is not to say that I am not day by day rooting for Simon and Schuster to publish good and stable books and employ the people I like. I want them to succeed. You know what I mean? Like this is not a the sort of thing where I wish this press would go away. Quite the opposite. And this just feels like you know this dawning of private equity. You know, okay, they're getting in. You know, they see. They clearly see an opportunity. Here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they see a chance to do what they did. Like and if you can remember like how people talked about like Toys R Us in 2005, it was it was a relic, right? It's like no one goes to these big toy stores anymore. You know, it's sort of this franchise that needs saving, all this different stuff. And the people who ended up buying it were not there to save it, right? Like that had nothing to do with trying to sell toys better. <laughs> like it was about like squeezing it, squeezing it, squeezing it for capital and then getting rid of it. And and at least like, you know, if you if you ask the economists uh, on their take 
on this acquisition. The the line is that this is just another step in the slow consolidation of publishing that has started in the 60s and the 70s. And I think Paramount has owned Simon & Schuster since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And, but here's the thing, like at least that company is also invested in making yes. things. Like they wanted to divest themselves from the book publishing business because that's not what they want to focus on. But like at least they're still making media. <laughs> yeah. Um and you know, everybody is saying, you know, this is the best option out of all of the options that existed for this sale to happen. Um and Jonathan Karp, who's the CEO of SNS, says, you know, we won't do layoffs. We're going to keep doing this the way that we're doing. But Jonathan Karp is a lying liar. Uh, and there's absolutely no way that there isn't going to be a huge amount of layoffs. And given the scope of the business at large relying on layoffs right now, we just did an episode a few weeks ago about layoffs. Yeah. Um, that's really scary. So it's really, really scary. I want to read one. We're going to move to our next thing first because I think the brunt of this episode is going to be talking about how this, these two things intersect. But before we do, I want to read one paragraph here from a story by Dan Sinekin, who you should follow, by the way. He's a really great uh, publishing reporter and writer and professor. He's someone who really studies this stuff pretty closely. Um, but he wrote for the LA Times about this uh, this acquisition. And I want to read this one paragraph from his work. It is, in one sense, the continuation of an old story. The corporatization of publishing began in the 1960s. Times Mirror acquired the esteemed mass-market paperback house New American Library in 1960 and hired McKinsey consultants to rationalize its operations, leading to increasing control for the business office and an exodus of editorial talent that that included luminaries such as E.L. Doctorow and Andre Schifrin. Few acquisitions or mergers have been as dramatic since, though all nudged publishing toward prioritizing financial growth. The big difference this week is that for decades, media companies have tended to acquire publishing houses. Bertelsmann, CBS, Hachette, Holtzbrink, News Corp, Paramount. Not so much private equity. And so before we unpack what I just read, I want to move to the AI stuff Mm -hmm. because I do think that the key to what we're trying to say here comes in the blend. And so Laura... Yes. Tell me about <laughs> tell me about artificial intelligence as it relates to our little corner of the book world. Um, okay, so as agents, <clears throat> this has been something that we have been needing to pay attention to increasingly, particularly yes. in contracts. Yes. And it's one of those things where the Authors Guild and agencies are leading the push in this. And publishers, particularly the big five, are really resistant to guaranteeing authors that they won't have an AI-created cover or Mm -hmm. that their work won't be used for AI learning. Um, And, you know, there's a few other clauses in there, but it's been something that we've been concerned about as we've been, you know, moving through time and space and... Um, more and more horrifying ways. Um, additionally, there was a big like brouhaha a few sure a few was. months ago about um, the first poetry book written by AI mm-hmm. um, that was put all over Publishers Weekly, but didn't actually have an author. Um, and then last week, there was a site that specialized in. What they claimed was like helping writers 
educate themselves and write towards market by using existing books and analyzing them. It's called prose craft. And essentially what the person who did, like who ran this site um, is he used an AI model to crawl and like scrape data all over the internet, which means mm-hmm. like pirating tens of thousands of books. Yes. And training his AI on it to um, break it down into, frankly, hilarious metrics like word count, which is is quite useful for publishing. But things like the percent of passive voice, but it improperly it didn't know what, no, it didn't know what <laughs> passive voice was, yeah. and like the number of yeah. like ly adverbs, which is also not deeply helpful, and just like <clears throat> just you know. We were ragging on it all over Twitter because it was infuriating because it wasn't a fair use. <laughs> like it was using pirated copies to teach an AI and then posted information like proprietary information about these books, but doing it incorrectly. Like the incorrectly part was the fun part. Yeah. Um, the not fun part was the copyright infringement. And that's the, just real quick. That's the part that I do want to draw that distinction on is because it's very and I include myself in this. It's very easy to get your faves and your retweets yeah. off of, wow, look at this stupid thing someone's doing with AI. Look at them try to count LY yeah. adverbs in books. Why in the, like, what a silly way to approach writing or thinking about books. And that is silly. And I would encourage you to mock it at every turn. <laughs> but the thing, the real reason to object to this is because whole texts are being fed into this program with no rights cleared, with no anything else. And then that. And we saw this a few months that, ago in the art yeah. world. Right. And um, then that processing is being used to do different things to cut out, you know, writers and other workers as a way of like you're teaching a machine to write like you. You're, or And that that's like a very simplistic. I That's what I was going to say, too. I'm not saying your point is simplistic. I'm <laughs> saying that like that is sort of the glib way of putting it. It's like you're teaching the machine to do this thing by using other people's hard work and Without no permission. One, and that's where the contract thing is coming in, too. It's like, well, if you're going to – you do not get to use, you know, my book to teach your machine to write other – but, like, that's just not what we're going to do, you know. And so um, it's becoming sort of this new, quote-unquote, I guess a subright or what, a protection? Yeah, like, it, it, a, some of it is subright, some yeah, of it is depends not. Depends on the application. But, like, yeah. um, so, yeah, keep going. But I just wanted to make sure we're drawing a distinction between the silliness, which – mock it and it is silly it was incredibly silly but also (laughs) the serious sort of infringing on rights and what it's that infringement will then turn around and do right so that happened and at the same time publishers weekly posted this breathy op-ed by somebody in publishing who's using ai to do a lot of things that i'm not actually very like that i don't object a ton about like um pulling like scraping metadata and using it to like upload and maintain their systems, but then, um, and, you know, doing preliminary work to find comps or to write cover copy. Preliminary stuff being the key here. Yeah. Um, but it seems like we're being hit on all of the sides with regards to now we have to use AI to market the books. Now we have to use AI to write the books, um, to teach people how to write books. All of this stuff, yeah. um, and we're just being slammed over the head with it. And the and the problem is that there there isn't enough precedent in the courts. Um, copyright is like a, a 
really rigorously protected thing in this country. Um, this is a classic tech move. Yeah. To exploit an area before that, the courts catch before up anyone on has overt language for it, and just basically, rather than approaching things from the state of hey, we should protect the people who make this. It's, oop, you didn't explicitly say that this brand new technology that didn't exist when you wrote your little document, like, this means I can do whatever I want until you have to retroactively go back and yeah. fix what I break and, before, yeah. And to be clear, like, Prose Craft was run by, like, one dude yeah. who, like, to dunk on him again, spent 10 years trying to figure out how to, like, write a marketable book <laughs> and didn't, like, consult one IP lawyer about fair use Anyway, anyway, um, yeah. pulling back out of the dunk again, he's just one dude. And so a bunch of famous writers got mad publicly at this yeah. one guy and he took it down. But yeah. like if it wasn't just one guy, no, if I mean, it was are, that big tech money, about this if stuff. it was going to yeah. be big tech money that had pockets for lawyers, it would have been a very, very, very different situation. Not as dunkable um and not as easily resolved but that's kind of where we're headed and that's what this and we're gonna have to fight it yeah apparently and i hate that we're gonna have to do this but clearly on every turn like i'm looking at this op-ed in publishers weekly laura that you sent me uh from i guess late last week it's called um generative ai technology can support book publishing um which you can imagine how i feel about that premise but um, you know, it's talking in here about, well, we can use it for metadata. We can use it for comp titles. We can use it to write copy. We can do all these different things with this computer. And it's like we're going to have to, every single front, we're going to have to look at these things and be like, actually, no, there's a real person who needs to be thinking about the way we talk about books and push things out into the world and frame them and do comp. Like, so much of this stuff... And this is where I this is where I think our conversation about the blend in these two topics begins. It's between an investment company buying a big press that has nothing to do like like not a media conglomerate buying a publisher, but just a private equity firm mm -hmm. that is that exists and makes its money by doing the strip and flip. Yeah. And then this idea that we can start to use AI to it lied out all these different tasks that we've previously given to like seasoned book people, you know, to do things. It's, I just worry, I worry about the tech startupification of <laughs> publishing, and I know you do too. And it's like, at some point, what's happened, like when I think very broadly for a second, is. Publishing, when you talk about book publishing to people who don't work in this industry, or when people who come from any other realm of life talk about this industry and they ask, what do you think of book publishing? The first thing they'll tell you, I, th I have found, is that it's a dinosaur, mm -hmm. right? Publishing is inefficient. It's not technologically savvy. It's not necessarily so good with its numbers. It's, you know, it does all of these things very slowly, archaically, all this sort of stuff. And in different ways, I tend to agree, right? I mean, there are certainly inefficiencies all over this industry. But inefficiencies according to what is a better question. Yeah. But, like, the point is the vultures have noticed that. And they've started to circle. And they've basically said, here's this industry that isn't running up to what we, the Silicon Valley guy, 
think of as an efficient company or a proper use of you know owned capital or any of this kind of stuff. And what's going to happen, I think, is a bunch of transformations and efficiency maneuvers, which, as we <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, always just means like layoffs and restructurings, like stuff that has nothing to do with making a better book and more creating companies that have better bottom lines, right? Right. So here, here is the thing that makes publishing so wonderful, but also particularly vulnerable in this situation, is that a, a book is a very big and unwieldy product to sell. It yeah, doesn't it solve any problems. It's hard to summarize because it has so much content. It's slow to write. It's slow to produce. It's um, annoying to produce. It's annoying I mean, to produce. There's a ton of paper and ink and all these things. Like there's there's tons of it. There's tons of them on the market, and they're all slightly different. And you know, on one hand, you could look say, hey, like it would be great to have AI or to have some sort of like VC come in and help us with the metadata and the distribution and all of that. But the part that it's missing there is that there are so much like ephemera when it comes to even like marketing a yeah. product that's as big as this. So like yeah. if you have a book that doesn't fit super comfortably in one genre then you need human beings who understand the market as a whole, understand the context through which they are publishing it with their other books and in yeah. the season that they're doing it and in like based on the author's history and based on who their sales reps are and who the booksellers are. Like there's all of these human elements to even something that you think that can be drilled down as quickly as you know, this is data that we can use a computer to figure out. Well, what you're talking, what you're, I totally agree. But the, what, and what you're talking about is cultural production. It is as cultural opposed production. To just an object. Yeah. You know and, what I mean? Like, and everything that we can look at and say, this is inefficiency. Yeah. That is the point. <laughs> exactly. Like that, that, that exactly. everything that is described as inefficiency in book publishing is the human element. It is the thing that creates that spark in a bottle. It's the art that, of it. yeah. That publishers <coughs> say all the time that they don't know how to make, but then, you know, will, like, do it anyway. <laughs> um, and it's 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 the, the humanity of it that is the point. And it's that inefficiency which makes the business successful overall. When so, you tried to strip the the human element out of the newspapers and the magazine industry, what happened? Yeah, I mean, they it, died. It died, and it's only gotten worse from there. I mean, if you look at other media right now, like for as much shit as we give the book publishing industry, I mean, go look at journalism right now. Go look at like any sort of web content. It is a hellscape. It really, really is, and. There are still people out there writing wonderful stuff. No, and doing there, of wonderful course there things. are. I wish they were supported. Is my point? Yeah. Like, I'm not. It's not about anyone's single product. It's about these structures. And like, I, you know, a really important thing I think to do is identify, like, when we say, oh, inefficiencies, or you know, pr you know, book publishing doesn't do a very good job of, you know, X, Y, or Z. It's good job according to what logic or efficiency according to what logic and that logic especially as 
you know, the United States continues its like rightward drift into, you know, libertarian hellscape that, you know, we've all been experiencing, like it's the logic of I mean it's the logic of capital, right? Like it's the logic that when you have a company, the most important thing it can do is keep its costs as low as possible, keep its uh, you know, revenues, you know, as high as possible. And more importantly than anything else, grow, grow, grow. Last year's bottom line, mm-hmm. even if it worked to balance the budget and do that, it is not good enough this year because we have to make more, more, more. And if we're not making more, if that line is not not just holding steady, if that line isn't going up, then there's a problem and we need to reshuffle. And that's where, like, when I think about, you know, the the details from that Toys R Us episode with KKR feels really um, kind of haunting, you know, is maybe the word I want to use. Like, you know, one, they buy it based on debt and then they give the debt to the company and say, you are in debt and now you need to get out of debt. You need to get out of debt by (laughs) doing all these cost saving things, including stuff like having, you know, employees shill like, credit cards, you know, I mean, just the skeeziest stuff, you know what I mean? Stuff you associate with not businesses like any, (laughs) just really weird, you know, moves. And I don't know what form or shape that's going to take in book publishing, but I do worry. And I do think it all is just going to kind of stem from this logic of Simon & Schuster is not a book publisher. It is an asset of ours. It is part of our portfolio, and we are going to judge it based on how it performs in relation to those other assets. And publishers don't... I mean, I I don't know how else to put it without sounding like like a college kid, but, like, not everything, especially not this industry, is designed or can be designed purely around the idea of, like producing perfect bottom lines like that's just not like you are you just laid out really well i think all the reasons why publishing can't be that will not be that that's not what a book is you know what i mean like it's not a book is not a very useful widget (laughs) like it's a kind of a stupid object according to the logic we're talking about we need to get Like like the big like millionaire money launderers in like with the fine art world yeah like that's what we need yeah we need some guys who's like yeah, do you want to publish three seasons of weirdo books? Yeah, no, like that kind of thing. I'll pay like, for that. <laughs> that'd be great. Like the Republicans uh, are already doing. They do that with every piece of culture production they have. Yeah, yeah. including their books. Yeah, um, okay. <laughs> very much their books. Yeah. <laughs> um, but did you see this? And this relates, I promise, to what you just said. But this singer guy that just came out, he just put out this song. I think it's called, like, Rich Men from up north of Richmond, it's called. And it's, like, this just, like, this guy in the woods on a guitar singing about, you know, just conservative stuff and how bad the world is and all this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, there was this total freak out immediately because it's, like, look at this conservative guy playing the guitar and look at all these listens he's getting. Look at how, how he's resonating. Look at how impactful he is clearly conservatism is the way if it's resonating with the people like this and then we find out like 48 hours later that all the downloads are bought that he was launched according to a bunch of like daily wire host strategies like it was just a totally astroturfed thing similar to like what we talk about with like conservative books where it's like oh bestseller it's like well yeah your foundation bought like 50,000 copies of this like it's just we need that like but but for (laughs) but to like 
not just for one book. We need somebody to like decide that they need to mon like the best way to launder their money. Yeah. I'm trying to is through publishing. Who could it be? Who's the cool billionaire? Oh, there really is. There one, aren't any, unfortunately. unfortunately. But like, we need <laughs> we need someone who's really into like the seven stories press list or like the <laughs> like the Melville House. Like, we need a someone who wants to use their vast wealth and ill-gotten gains to like fund a bunch of chat books. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but that's not how it works. Yeah. Anyway, um, any, okay. So, going going back to serious yes. for a minute. Yes. Um, I think. Beyond the layoffs that everybody knows are coming from this acquisition um, and from, you know, publishers pivoting to AI in a way that will go perfectly well, the same way that pivoting to video did for all the media companies a few years ago. Um, I want to talk about the labor element here. So what we're seeing is an increasing push for that kind of like tech startup, like venture capitalist mindset in publishing. Yeah. And there's there's this knowledge that the labor in getting people to work for these companies has to do with that grind, grind, grind mindset and that yes. um, that manipulation about like we're all family and we're making something new and fresh and we're disrupting stuff and we're changing the world. Startup culture. Startup culture. I am really curious how that mindset is going to bump up against uh, publishing's own version of that, which is um, where they get all of the like middle and upper class white women who just love books and can work for free uh, for five or ten years. It's so cool that you're the one that people are going to get mad at now and not me. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, well, continue. it's true. Yeah. Um, like historically, those are yeah. the people who have been hired into publishing, yeah, and totally. and most importantly, like even among DEI initiatives that have been happening, yeah. um, and like you know the Harper Collins strike and higher wages, like the people who have the financial support to stay in this business are like the white ladies, right? It's sort of interesting how that might change, right? Because like, right. That so that's what I'm thinking about. Like when you have the, like the, the highly educated, I love books so much. So I'm going to work for nothing bumping up against the grind, 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 money, money, money. What is going to happen? What's the appeal? Are because we are we going to lose the privileged I love book girls coming into this business? I don't know who you're going to I I don't know whether or not you're going to lose them specifically and you might because I think your point is a good one but you you're bumping up against a really fascinating thing which is publishing has always sold its workers a vibe. Yeah. Right? They've sold you the vibe that you're in here and you're the mission. The, the, the mission, mission amongst the shelves and you're you're doing an art-based mission and yeah, you're getting paid like shit, but you're working on books and you're impacting culture and all this stuff. You're changing the world. If publishing publishing is already losing talent. We know this. Right? Constantly. Constantly. And it's losing its best people. It's because the best people are very frequently the ones who are being asked to do way too much and treated the worst and all these sorts of things. Like the brain drain from this industry is real and yeah. already happening. But the other, like, in terms of if you take what appeals to people about publishing as a workplace, right? Like, the reason that so many people are applying for every single editorial assistant job and the reason so many people 
are dying to get in to do these different you know roles at a publishing house is because you're selling them on like meaningful cultural production. But if you stop talking about it that way, if suddenly that that's just one more inefficiency in and, your in your in your asset, and they get eaten up by like, the grind startup culture yeah. exploitation instead of the vision like, exploitation. If suddenly this is puffy, if this is puffy vest guys, you know, like <laughs> walking around, you know. <laughs> You know what I'm talking. You I know do, what I'm talking I know. about. Like, Which is funny because every few months you ask for a vest. I do. That's branded. I do. Sometimes I think of myself as a puffy vest guy. It's one of my worst <laughs> moods. Um, but you know what I'm saying. The the tech guy, right? Yeah, like, the tech guy. If everyone is walking around, you know, in the sweatshirt under a blazer. Yes. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> then I think that you know, if this if publishing Silicon Valleyizes itself like this. I really think that you're going to lose a certain amount of the sort of people who have always put in way more than they've gotten yeah. out in well, this industry. And I look, and I, this is where I actually want to swing back to AI for a second because it's like, who are we going to get instead? Yeah. The AI people. We're going to get the people who think that the way you talk about books is by feeding it into a machine and looking at word count averages. Yeah. And what percentage of it is this? And what percentage of it is that? How do we take a piece of writing and strip it down to its pure like algorithmic metadata, you know what I mean, as opposed to anything else? you know. And that's how we're going to figure out the comps. That's how we're going to figure out all this stuff. Like, if, like one thing that I think you know, is a point of connection here is how, how might they do it? You know, how might a firm like KKR or any other, you know, tech overlord work with publishing? One of the ways they're going to trim inefficiency is through these technologies that have nothing to do with treating writers well or treating workers well. They're purely about removing jobs so that you can make the machine do the things so you don't have to pay the machine, right? And I just, to me, that's what AI is right now. It's this, it's going to be the hammer or the main tool that people who are not interested in producing better works and better books and a more sustainable publishing industry for the people who work in it and care about it, this is the tool they're going to use to reshape the industry in their image. And, you know, it just, you know, we've talked so many times, we've evoked that initial image of Jeff Bezos picking publishing purely on the basis of books were the, square the physical and easy to object cheat. was easy to ship. Easy to ship, yeah. You know? And I just look at this in a similar vein where it's like none of this has anything to do with loving books or wanting good culture versus bad. You know, it's a and you know, we've been critical too. I, I just think broadly about this show and the opinions you and I have expressed. We've been critical too of um the love books moniker, right? Like how dangerous it can be to sell that. But it's also like... Preferable? It's it's preferable <laughs> and it is a guiding light in some way. And you do need people who actually care Well, okay, about... so here's the thing. It's not dangerous in terms of an individual because, like, I think that people should come at this business. It's dangerous with, when it's management art... selling it to you as a means of paying you less. Right. Yeah. And that and that is the problem. And that's kind yeah. of where the, like, middle and upper class white women who are still in this business after five years, after ten years, because they can afford to be. Yep. Whereas we get the brain drain um, from people of marginalized backgrounds because they can't afford to be in this business. Yeah. If we get rid of 
the people who get into this for artistic reasons, regardless of their socioeconomic background. And we end up going for the AI bros, the tech guys, etc. What happens in is that in five to ten years, when all of the assistants are now editors, senior editors, starting to run imprints, is we are not going to have the vision-driven management that is very important for guiding imprints and guiding publishers. What we're not going to be having is people who have the institutional knowledge to understand how to, like, sell and retain a shred of artistic merit or cultural merit. And what is going to happen is, like, I think we are all going to learn the hard way that this shit does not work. Like when you take the inefficiency, quote unquote, out of it, we are going to be losing it and we're going to be losing why this business is a billion dollar business anyway. Right. And, you know, I think like in 15 or 20 years after a lot of this collapses and we lose at the very least Simon and Schuster, if not another big five, yeah. we will have a beautiful renaissance of like mid-sized publishers Uh but the cost to get there is too steep. Like the we are going to lose we are gonna lose incredible editorial minds. We are going to um, lose tons of ground with regards to paying writers and compensating writers. And so we're going to lose a lot of talent there. Um, AI is going to steal millions from writers by infringing on their copyright. We are going to like we're going to have a really rough time. Like the people who are in this business for the right reasons, for those like cultural aesthetic, like that, like art as a human initiative. We are going to be losing a lot of those people. Well, why would they work in an industry that doesn't even treat itself that way? You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's it's one thing when the conditions are bad, but everyone sort of agrees that what we're doing is important right. on the level of culture, but. I don't know. I just this this sort of stuff, you know, seeing seeing the firm that bought uh, Toys R Us and knowing, you know, I came to that story, to this story, knowing that that's who that was and remembering those details and then revisiting them this week, like seeing that and then seeing the stuff about how people there are people out there who think we should be putting AI to work in every possible way in the publishing industry. Like I just, what are we doing? Like, what's the point? And like, what is the founding logic of what we're trying to do? And if the founding logic becomes, this needs to behave like a tech company or an asset of a venture firm, I just think that like something really, really fundamental, like the fundamental rules have gotten different. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that article we just looked at like has you know, a lot to say, you know, where it's at least this used to be media companies who were interested <laughs> in making media. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and there are problems with, you know, Bertelsmann and Paramount and all these other, like, we can criticize them too until the cows come home, but like, at least they have the fundamental idea of, okay, hey, we're going to use this company to, to produce things. things. <laughs> like, to make things. Yeah, and I don't know, man. <laughs> I just, I think that yeah. we're... Yeah, I I mean, but I also, like, challenge anybody to, like, make an AI that is better at 
selling books and writing marketing copy than like one person who sits at a desk and makes $50,000 a year and is yeah. just very sharp and knows what they are working on and what their lane is and can pull copy together incredibly fast and efficiently. Like you can't tell me that yeah. human beings are the bad investment here. Yeah. But they are going to tell you that, they you know are. what I mean? Like, and they, they're going to tell you that everywhere else. AI is getting used to, which is why I honestly like, yeah, we got to, I just hate I hate the classic tech thing of well I hate so much about the tech world in general just aesthetically it, the way it sort of slimes its way through these different ventures and then pretends they're all going to revolutionize the world and then as soon as they're able to sell or flip their stake in it totally abandon it and move to the next one I mean the AI guys are all the NFT guys they're all the people you know who did the yeah crypto stuff i mean every there's always something right that shows up and everyone who works in silicon valley pretends it's the future for just long enough that they can flip their stake in it for a profit and then they abandon it and the thing craters and who cares what happens when they do that the only and, guy i want disrupting the publishing industry is johannes gutenberg <laughs> let's end on that we're ending on that okay we're out perfect see you next week folks bye